instead of talking about who's educated, because educated is past tense. It sounds as if so-and-so went to XY University and they were educated there. I think the word we should be thinking about is enlightenment, which which I believe means to go into the light. And I believe that's what we should be doing with with quote unquote education is to think about education in terms of enlightenment. How do we learn more? Hey, quick reminder before we hop into today's episode. If you have not done so yet, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast so that more people can join the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Today, I am taking education outside of the traditional classroom setting. My guest today is a speaker, author, financial advisor, and has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share on many topics. He is a self-proclaimed humanity propulsion engineer who has several advanced degrees, including a BA in accounting, master's in history and theology, and also a doctor of jurisprudence. Joining me today from just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, I'm excited to welcome Mr. Nathaniel Turner. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So obviously that introduction is the, the tiniest little blip on what you have to offer and what your experience is. Before we dive into the actual topic, can you give us a little bit more, maybe like the Cliff Notes version of who you are as a person and then how you became to be so passionate about education? Who I am as a person. This is an interesting word to to ask the word (laughs) who, which is, which is for me, like the most important word in all of the, the entire planet, but because it's, and it's also a word that very few people pay attention to who, who is the word that'll end up on our obituary? Who is the word that ends up in our eulogy and who are the final words that'll end up on our tombstone? So who am I? I'm simply a guy that when my time is up, I hope to be judged by how many people I helped, how many people I served. And how many lives, um, how many people knew their lives mattered because of the relationship with me? That's, that's who I am. I'm who I am more, uh, in present is I'm a father and a husband. Um, that's, that's, that's it. I'm a guy who hopes to lead a planet better upon my departure than it was on my arrival. Awesome. Okay. And how did you get to, how did you become passionate about education? Did that start early? Um, because your, your passion on education, obviously seen within your degrees, the amount of time you spent schooling Mm -hmm. yourself, but also continued (laughs) in what you do today. So I'm, uh, my passion about education probably began around my 10th, 10th grade year. I, my father told me at the end of the 10th grade year that, you know, in two years you have to do something. And I said, I'm not do what he said, you have three things you can do. You can go to college, you can join the military or you can move out and get your own house. And so only those two, one of those two things allowed me to come back and be in the presence of my mother on a regular basis. So that meant I need to figure out how to get to college. I was a C student at best. And, um, I've had some friends that I, I sort of mimic what they were doing. I had an opportunity to talk to an attorney. His name was at the time of Judge James Kimbrough. He was also a judge. And I got a chance to ask him 
how he managed to become a judge. He was a sm- small, diminutive, uh, diminutive man. And um, I realized that I didn't have to be an athlete, that I could follow the pathway that he had. So I, I asked him some, some, for some insight and got some insight from some other people. And then I was further inspired by my guidance counselor who told me that the best I could hope to do would be to join the military. And so between my father yeah, and my guidance counselor, I had some, the, the fuel I needed to get my act together. Well, thankfully, you took that fuel in a different direction than they necessarily were, were sending you. It's amazing how many times I've heard stories like that from people that came from educators that just didn't believe in them. And I don't mean to bring a negative connotation to educators because I do think that there we have a lot of amazing people out there. But for some reason, they're not seeing what is available to some students. And that's so sad. And to say something like that, that could impact someone for their entire life in a negative way. You just took it and you harnessed it into a positive thing. So cheers to that. Yeah, I was lucky. Yeah, that's very lucky. So this one, we we have talked to educators on various levels that are actually within the school system. And I'm really excited to hear your perspective because you have some really specific ideas on education, not just within the system, but as a general rule coming from parents specifically. But I want to start with your book, Stop the Bus. So how did that book come about? And can you share, I mean, I'm going to address the fact that everyone should grab it and just kind of read it themselves. But if you can address maybe one or two key challenges that are addressed in it. Okay. So how did it come about? It came about because I was just utterly frustrated at a point in time where I was attending a lot of local meetings around education and, and attended some some national meetings as well. And felt like the conversation about education was was off focus. And so I would re- read, an, uh, let's say I would read an article or hear someone speak, and then they would offer an opportunity if you had comments, and I would generally write a comment. Um, or if you were reading an article, you could, you know, you could write to the editor. And generally, the editor would only allow you, I believe, to use about 300 words. So what I decided to do was to write a series of short essays, and I would write one every day to something that I responded to. And then after a while, as case it is with my with my son and my wife, they said, you know, some of these are pretty good. You might want to consider publishing these. So I put them together in a little book called Stop the Bus, and and that's essentially how it came to be. So your frustrations with what are some specific frustrations that triggered? So for one of my frustrations is that I think schools are um, patronized and they undervalue the importance of a family. So I'll give you specifics. Aristotle, I believe, says, bring me a child by seven. I'll show you the man. Most um, child development specialists, um, psychologists and the like know that the uh, 80% or so of the brain is developed by the child's first three years. And, but in, in America, what we do is we don't ask children to, and, and in some states to go to school mandatory until they're between six and eight years of, years of age, which means that the first six years or more, a child spends their time alone with their parents. And so this ideal of getting children ready at six seems to be ridiculous because we could show families very early how to make sure that children were prepared, not not prepared to come to school and sit at their desk. But we could we could actually make sure children were reading long before age six. We could actually make sure children were able to do math long before age six. And all of the things that we need children to do in terms of their behavior, we could we could ma- have make sure children master those things ahead of time 
But in this country, we we wait. And so I was just utterly frustrated with this discussion around continuing to do the same things we've always done. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, so it sounds like it's kind of the disconnect between the fundamental education system and how that interacts with family organization and just the basic development of the child. And then you've got these parents that aren't necessarily it sounds like you are very engaged. You mentioned your mom in a lot of your talks. So it sounds like mm-hmm. you have a, an amazing family and you talk about your son and how, you know, invested in his future you were. That's right. fantastic. There's a lot of people that fall behind, behind on that though. They don't have that same representation. Maybe they're in a single parent household that their parent just doesn't have time or mm-hmm. resources or maybe possibly the knowledge themselves to be able to influence and give that to them. So I think that's the, so important. I would say the big, if I could, if I could, the big takeaway from the things you said, the one thing that I think uh, that has to be addressed is I, I'm a, I'm a product of um, a home with eight aces. Um, my wife is a product of a, of a home with seven aces combined the nine of the 10 aces they they currently reside in, in our house together. So the idea that um, one has to come from a perfect home is 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 not correct. I didn't come from a perfect home. Yes, I have a good relationship with my mother. Had a tumultuous relationship with my father. Not good at all. Saw things happen in my home that no child should ever see happening in their home. Um, my wife has had horrific experiences in her home. So, but the, the, the thing that differentiates my son's situation, even from my situation and from my mother's situation, is that the two people who decided to create a life sat down and thought about what they wanted for that life that they were creating. And for me, again, that's one of the things I think that is missing. In, in, in the U.S., we, we send parents to Lamaze classes and we teach them how to eat ice chips and how to, how to breathe and so forth. But the moment that that child is born, 24 to 48 hours later, when we send the family home from the hospital, that family has no instruction about what to do with their children. So even if we say, you know, some people are, are going to go to a bad home life and some people are not going to have as many privileges and some people are not going to be raising children with wealth. One of the things we don't do we don't even give anyone any instructions on the kinds of things you could do. There's so many things we can do in this country that are free. Um, there's so many uh, websites and resources that are available that families could use to help their children. It doesn't take a lot to sing or dance with your child. It doesn't take a lot to read a book with your child. There are a number of things you can do, but to your point, people don't know to do it because we don't take the time to share. And so to me, in some ways, it seems insidious as if that that is intentional that we would deprive people of basic skills and basic knowledge and allow them to go home with the most precious life form on the planet with no instructions on how to help that life form be a great citizen. Okay. Thank you so much for clarifying that. That's actually super important because that is, so I just want to reverse real quick. So in our roundtable episode, ACEs, just to anybody who's listening that doesn't know, is adverse childhood experiences. And so what you're saying is so critical for people to understand. Because it's something that you can acknowledge and you can be an example of how you can overcome things like that. Whereas someone who's constantly been put in negative situations has that negativity in their head. And then if they have whatever the case is, there's so many different factors, but if they don't have that spark in them that says you can change this situation, then they will continue to live in that situation and 
potentially perpetuated onto the next generation and on and on. And we find ourselves in these cycles, just like what you say with the education cycle, when we're not willing Mm -hmm. to acknowledge what's going on and what's going wrong, then we're not even acknowledged, but actually take action on that knowledge. Um, Then we're going to just keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Um, So what is in terms of the parent's role in education, Mm -hmm. how would you explain your thought process on that? You know, like before they start school, obviously you just Mm -hmm. mentioned a huge gap of their early childhood development that the parent is solely responsible for. But then also Mm -hmm. once they go off into school, what is the parent's role as, you know, outside of the classroom? So I believe that the parent's role is a lot like uh, being a movie director, if you will. Um, The children are the stars of the show and the parent's role is to direct the show as they hope that it would turn out. So to, to begin with, the the first thing I think parents should do is decide what they want for their children, what their hopes and their dreams are for their children. So I'll use um, my life as an example. Uh, before our son was born, we sat down and thought about what it was that we hoped for him, what we wanted to have happen for him academically. At the time, I was a law student at at uh, at Valparaiso University, a, a nice school. Actually, the university does no longer has the law school; cannot afford to keep the doors open. Um, but be it as it may, it wasn't it wasn't a great school. A great school is Harvard or Yale, one of the Ivies. It's a good school, and I and I asked myself. You know, how much different would my life be if I was at one of the so-called great schools? If when I walked out, firms were looking for me instead of me looking for firms. So when you're, when we realized we were having a child, we decided, well, what if we can make certain that we at the very least laid a foundation so that when our child was, was ready to apply for college, they could meet the academic requirements of Harvard. So the very first thing I think parents have to ask themselves. It's just what is it do they want for their children's lives? What are their hopes and dreams? And they have to be more specific than just saying, I want my child to go to college because all colleges are not equal. And so to me, it's really important to, to be able to know exactly where you want to go. Just as if you would imagine taking a trip, you would set your GPS to a specific location. You wouldn't just say, I want to go to eat and say, hey, hey, Google, I want to go eat because you'd have no places uh, for sure about where you were going to go. Google would list a whole number of places that you would stop and eat. You'd have to tell Google, I want to go to Red Robin. And then Google would find the closest Red Robin and tell you how to get there. I think people, parents have to do the same thing with education. So I've often thought about this because when we're talking about different schools, we actually were, were talking about how schools are funded and how if you live in a certain area, your educational experience from your friend or sports partner that lives three miles down the road could be vastly different simply due to overcrowding and funding. But then there's also this theory of you get what you put in, which I do think has merit to a degree. I think the challenge is what you're saying is you have to understand what it is that you want to get out of it in order to know what to put into it. And that's a huge gap that we have right now that because how how you expect a, a kid to know what they're trying to get out of it if they don't have direction from an educator or a parent specifically, Who, how can we reach any thoughts on how we can reach those kids, the underserved kids, the ones that don't have a parent that's necessarily actively involved because they're important. So, so two thoughts. One is, um, I think we, again, we undervalue what parents could do. And so we, we have allowed in this country, we have not more than allowed, we have 
encourage folks to outsource their children's educational outcomes to other people, whether or not those those people in those communities have even proven that they know what they're doing. We have out we've outsourced that. So the expectation is that when you have a child in America is that when the child gets to be, if we're lucky, pre-K, they're they're five, that there'll be a place we can send them to. Um, If you have enough resources, if you're lucky, you can say, I'll send my child to a a particular type of daycare. But the ideal all the time is to outsource it, the educational outcomes to someone other than the parent. I think we have to do a a paradigm shift and, and then teach parents how to be a part of the educational process for their own children. I think that's first and foremost something that has to happen. When children don't have parents who can help them specifically, I think then that the old adage that it takes a village to raise a, a child is true, that we have to form what we call a starting five, a collection of, of a minimum of five people that can be a part of a child's um, educational uh, process. So th- that it might be a teacher, it could be in my case, there was a, a, a police a police officer, a, a, a local sheriff, an educator, a judge. I, mean, I met some people. My parents introduced me to some people that I could then turn to and ask for help. Um, part of that is that our communities are not quite the same as they were in the, in the 70s. But I think that's a part of it, too. We have to find people from the outside who are also willing to help and, and, and form a family for children who don't have the kind of family experience at home. I agree. Entirely agree. I don't have kids personally, and I have nieces and nephews that I'm very close with. But oftentimes when we have these conversations, people like to pretend they can shut my opinion down because I don't have that experience. But but what we're not paying attention to is that the future generations that are growing up and being educated right now, regardless of if they are my flesh and blood or not, they are going to make the policies that change the world that I'm still going to live in hopefully, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I don't understand where this thought process goes is like, I think what you said is true. It's like, we're living in a different world where we're not connected in the same way to community. It's like to each his own. That's not my business. Stay out, you know? And that's, I don't know. I think that's doing some damage. No, yeah, I would agree. I would agree completely. And you are, you are involved and you should be involved. And it is a planet that that uh, someone is going to inhabit and then um, be responsible for solving, for example, all of the global issues that that exist. Those those people who are going to resolve those issues or exacerbate the problems that we have are people who are in the classroom right now. And so you should be able to provide some input. Um, but again, the way that the system is set up, sometimes um, educators, I, I'm I'm married to an educator, so I can say this: um, educators sometimes take offense to people outside who are quote unquote not educators, telling them about what you think is best for education. I don't know; it's it's um it's a problem. It's something we have to figure out how to resolve if we're going to help the future generations. Well, I think. I can actually understand that. I think there has to be a dialogue, but a dialogue with default respect to the people that are in the positions that are playing the game in, you know, in the stadium, because everybody outside can have all these opinions, but the ones that are in the playing the game and the mm-hmm. educators I'm making up an analogy here, it's not really working very well. <laughs> um, so they are the ones that are going to implement this. They're the ones that with the real life, real world experience to understand how something may or may not work. Doesn't mean they shouldn't have their mind open to giving different things a shot, but I can't understand where that perspective might come from. 
Yeah, I would say though, um, again, I, I live with one. So when we have these, we, we used to have these very heated conversations around education. And because I work um, by day in the financial industry, one of the things I would say is, well, what do you think you're educating students to do? And what economy, what world economy are you preparing students for? And what countries are you preparing students to work in? And so th- those questions go unanswered. So to my point is, well, then what exactly are we doing with education if we don't know what economies we're preparing them for? What what countries or nations are we preparing them to, to work in? Why are children still learning to speak French or Spanish and neither France or Spain have world-leading economies. Why aren't we teaching children to speak Mandarin? Why aren't more children um, learning Portuguese that they could go and work in Brazil and 40% of Brazil's workforce will need to come from outside the U.S.? So I would ask educators, to what end are you actually educating? And so that's not something that they're talking about in, in most schools of education. So it seems unfair to then say to people who are looking at markets and economies on a daily basis to say, well, you're not an educator. You can't participate. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things I wish I learned in school that I absolutely did not learn in school. A lot of things that I think, why did we learn about this when we could have learned about this and it would have been extraordinarily helpful in my, I'm doing air quotes, real world life. Um, it's It's a delicate balance to try to change something like that. I know you have some thoughts in in a talk that you gave, you mentioned patience. And I love your perspective on be patient because what I was going to say is education is slow to adapt like so many other things. It's like a slow process to get someone to change because there's so many strings attached to everything. But tell mom when she's making, you know, what, 65 cents lower than her male counterpart, tell her that she needs to be patient for that extra money. You know, this concept of, well, things are changing. It just Ah, takes time. And it's like, yeah, but you know what? Knock it off because that's kind of a crutch. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Well, our lifetime is short. And one of the interesting things about us living in a, a, um, and now I'm doing air quotes, right? A Christian nation is this idea that the the word that we supposedly follow says, uh, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough problems of its own which means to me that today is the day that matters the most. And yet, well, when, when it comes to finding a way to make sure everyone is whole and has an opportunity to live a full life, we tell people to be patient. And, and that just seems to be utterly ridiculous. So some people get to live their best life now and everybody else is told, well, you know, progress takes time. And I just don't think that that's a, a fair position to have um, for certainly for those of us who are have a bit waiting to be made whole in a country that hasn't always seen fit to make everyone whole. Yeah, it's a it's a hard pill to swallow. And yeah. if I think the way I see it is if there is a positive outcome that you can see, why would you walk to that? Let's run. You know what I mean? We're all yeah, worried about absolutely. losing breath and losing steam, but it's like if that is a realistic, you know, if we can get there and I think that it is very evident that we can make progress then why wouldn't we run towards it? I don't know. So I'm you're with you. Absolutely. 
It reminds me of a, I coached a, my son's soccer team when he was six. They were called the Tigers. And it was interesting because they had a draft before, before the season. And the other fathers decided to, to leave me with the quote unquote leftovers. They would give, they were going to give me the bad news bears of, of soccer. Well, interesting thing was that I asked the parents to get involved. So here's, here's the point of the parents. I asked the parents, they all met with me. I said, listen, they think our children are the worst. So here's what I'm going to ask you all to do each week. We're going to have, we're only allowed to have two practices, but I'm going to give you a list of things I'd like for your child to learn how to do and get become better at. At the end of each week, whosoever child improves the most, I'm going to give away movie passes and so forth for the family. So Heather, we had this soccer season. We had eight games. We won all eight games. We beat some teams by as many as 10 goals. By the mid part of the point of the season, um, they were asking us to stop scoring so many goals. My team then said, hey, coach, what do we get? What do we get for if we win the league? And I said, well, what do you all want? And they said, a limousine ride to Chuck E. Cheese. So here's the point you made about running rather than walking. As the limousine is pulling up, these six-year-olds, could not wait for the limo to get to them because they were excited about this opportunity and they started running to the limo. So your point is well taken. Why would you, why would you wait when you could run to the thing that you're most excited about having happen? And that's exactly what those six-year-olds showed me um, 20 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's weird to look back, isn't it? <laughs> Just, yeah. My nieces and nephews have birthdays and I'm like, oh gosh, like, wow. Now I know what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> when you're like, shoot, has it been that long? That means yes, I'm this old. Oh God. <laughs> so you have this concept of taking life and designing it backwards. I'm probably saying that wrong, but essentially mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's you're curating your own life, but doing it in reverse order. So basically mm-hmm. you have the vision and mm-hmm. then you say, what are the steps I need to do to get myself to that vision? And a prime example of that is now, of course, your son can and will and has made his own decisions, but you decided straight away, what was he, one years old? And you guys got a, a application to Harvard? He, was, he wasn't born. We he wasn't even born. Know, okay. Yeah. We didn't know what we were having. Yep. That's correct. So I love that. That's basically taking that note that your guidance counselor said to you mm-hmm. and saying, my son's not even born yet. And I'm already telling you that you're worth it and you can do whatever you want to do, even if it's to go to this school. So I love that. Can you share what your thought is on how important it is for not just youth, pretty much everybody, because you can start from anywhere, but specifically young people to take on that mindset as early as possible? Yep. So the interesting thing about backward design is it was completely accidental for us to, to figure, figure that out. We, when we got the application from Harvard, the application from Harvard listed three things that it, that Harvard was looking for from students. And while we, we were only thinking about the one thing, which, which was what do you need to do to prepare someone academically to get to Harvard, right? Great, great grades and high test scores, but embedded in the application were two other things. And I think this is an important part of it. So I, I just want to make sure I mentioned the second thing was that Harvard wanted students who were world citizens. That's the word they used in 1994. And they wanted students who they said cared about something greater than themselves. So it was those three elements, which we now call part of the life template that we wanted to raise a child who was intellectually ambitious, which for us meant more than great grades in, in class and great test scores meant someone who actually loved the ideal of, of enlightenment, that he just wanted to continue to learn. He was always intellectually curious and so forth. 
The second part, which we now call global and cultural competency, which is that we wanted to raise someone who 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 could also, beyond just speaking another language, understood other people's cultures that associated with those languages. And then lastly was to raise someone who was humanitarian driven. Today, when we meet with students and parents of all ages, in fact, to have a young lady who just turned 40, who five years, six years ago, we sat down and backward designed what she wanted to do with her future which included her getting a PhD um, in education. She just finished in May. And so um, she's now living the life that she wanted to live. I've got some small children who are now, I have a 10-year-old who's fluent in Mandarin and, and picking up Spanish and just learned to start to apply for his pilot's license. So there are a number of young people like this around the country that we've been working with. But the ideal is to begin with the end in mind. If the world were perfect, what is it that you like to do? And once we know what that is, we start to look at the steps to make those things happen. Oftentimes, we look at the steps that others who've come before you have used to get there and use that sort of as a jumping off point where to start. But the idea, of course, is always to say, to find out what your biggest hopes and dreams are and then help you to build towards that. This makes me think about the confusion. I don't know why we do this as humans or a society, whatever it is, but we take this one concept and we boil everything down to it. So it's like, be mindful, live in the day. Okay, but you can live in the day for tomorrow, right? And I know you're hearing me as a financial planner. I know it <laughs> because we have people, you can say that, right? But if you say that to someone when in, with regards to finances, okay, so now you live paycheck to paycheck. So what happens tomorrow if you're still alive and some tragic event happens? Not to go tragic because it could be anything, right, but- now you've lived for yesterday and you're not prepared for tomorrow. So it's this concept of, well, I'll deal with it. We'll cross that bridge when I come to it. It's all these little things that we have in our head that tell us that we don't have to plan for the future, that we can just go with the flow. You, you mentioned it earlier in terms of a religious belief of just let it be. You know what I mean? Whatever will be, will be. But the problem is, is that that's just an excuse. We're just excusing ourselves from having to take accountability for our own education, for our own children. So, all right, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of all these things and it's like, I, I do. I love being mindful. I think that's really important, but that doesn't mean you get to like shut everything else off. No, agreed. I, I, I call it a little bit like this thing called the farmer's process, which we say um, uh, farmers are very unique people, right? Because every day they get up and essentially do the same thing. And they do the same thing without any, they can hope, you can hope that the, that the, that you'll get rain. You can hope that you'll have ample sun, sunlight. But most farmers, certainly the, the old school farming, you have no control over the elements, but the thing you could control, you would control every day. I would get up every day. I, I plant, I plow, I pull weeds, I fertilize. I do, right, I do those things all day long. And, and I hope that there's, there's rain. I hope that it doesn't get too, too hot or I hope that it's hot enough so that the seeds and things will germinate and I'll get the harvest that I'm looking forward to. But you do the same thing every day um, with the, with a look to the future, but focusing squarely on doing what you have to do in the present, because without that, there is no possibility of that future happening. Yes, I love it. So I had a situation yesterday and it wasn't my situation. It was my good friend's situation that she came to me because she was just on fire with frustration over this. And of course, I thus I became on fire as well. I used some not so nice words. 
So let me, I just want to share this with you and get your thoughts on it because it is very education related. So it is timely for this conversation. It was a 12 year old who there was some sort of function. She wrote a letter because at this function, there was boys and girls, uh, not boys and girls, excuse me, um, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. And the announcer announced the Boy Scouts as the future leaders of America. And he announced the Girl Scouts as just having fun. So this 12-year-old was upset. She was a female 12-year-old. She wrote a letter to the paper saying that she was offended and disappointed by those words. And I didn't get the whole article. I just got a screenshot. And subsequently, there was a huge conversation that the moms were, there was several moms in a small town, small white town in the Midwest. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> that were mad that the 12-year-old was involved in that. They said, she's only 12. She should just be having fun and have, doing kid stuff. And my friend specifically wrote, she said, but, but she's right. She's right. So this is your opportunity as a parent to engage in a conversation about it. But rather than engaging, they're shutting it down completely. They don't care if she's right or wrong. They're telling her, you're 12. You shouldn't be thinking about that yet. Well, aside from the fact that many people are forced to think about things, at a very young age, why would you shut down that conversation? So my reaction was, of course, like I said, a lot of bad words. What would your reaction to be if you were involved <laughs> in that conversation? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a it's 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 similar. My my son is a I think thirteen year old got involved with um, uh, the homelessness issue in in this country and did some work with do something dot org and was invited to California to do some work with the Department of Health and Human Services, I believe, in the city of San Francisco. Um, so I'm I'm an advocate for children getting involved as soon as possible. I think that there's the if you think about the rule of the ten thousand hour and what it takes to become an expert in something, um it you know if it if it is true that it takes you ten thousand hours, then the children don't have a whole lot of time to waste and we don't have a whole lot of time to ways to convince children to care deeply about something. So if my son or daughter cared deeply about something as this young lady did, I would encourage her right, to, to do everything she could to make the world that she wants to live in that world. And if that means speaking out and adults not liking it too bad, I would step up to the plate and support my child to the fullest extent possible. Yes, I love it much more eloquently than I put it. But I think <laughs> I, I think the reason why I was so upset is there was a willful ignorance involved. There's this idea that children cannot be happy and loving and have a wonderful childhood and also care about very important things that are brought to their attention. Yeah, I mean it's it's their inheritance. The this planet this planet does not and, and I've said this and I continue to say this to adults, this this planet does not belong to me exclusively. It doesn't belong to adults exclusively. In fact, it, you know, if we're if we're fair, the planet belongs to those who have the ex, the longer life expectancy. My son's life, he's 26, is he's he's expected to be here a lot longer than I'm expected to be here. If I lived another 30 years, he's expected to live another 60 years. So of the two of us, the person who seems to have the, the biggest vested interest in the future of the planet would be him. If there's a, if I had a child who was six, you know, the same thing would be said. So how, how dare I say to someone else that that thing that you're going to inherit, you should have nothing to say about it. That's utterly ridiculous. But again, that's the role that oftentimes adults take. I think it's a, obviously, I think it is a, an incorrect position to have, but it is a role that we take nonetheless. 
So speaking about adults, we Mm. know, we know without argument that there are massive disparities in basic education, Mm -hmm. geographically, racially, all over the mark. There are very different um, experiences that people go through. So to expect everyone to come out of those experiences on the same playing field, it just doesn't make sense, right? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done within those systems to give a more equitable experience and education opportunity. But outside of that, once we've moved past adolescence and we can officially be considered adults, have we totally missed the mark or can we go back? I know my opinion, but I'd like yours. So I just want to make sure I'm clear about the the, the question. Um, you want to know if if there's a way to mitigate the inequities that currently exist in, in, in education and other social systems? Is that yeah. So if we have two two kids that come mm-hmm. out of very different learning experiences, one with a lot of privilege and one uh, without, and now they're both, let's use 26. Your son, you said your son's 26. Let's say they're both 26 now. Can the one that didn't have the opportunity catch up in their own right to the person that did? We already know that that system is flawed. So the idea that we'll continue, which feels a lot like we're continuing to do what we've always done. So I'll get, I use my son's ex- situation for example. When we, when he was born, his father, yes, his father had a law degree, and his mother worked at a at a university as an at a, as a guidance or admissions officer. But we had no financial resources whatsoever. I had, as most students have, lots of student debt. Um, I worked, was working for a university that didn't pay me very much, had a wife who decided she wanted to go back to school, and we had this small child. We lived, our very first apart place we lived, we lived in an apartment where I had to figure out how to get cat urine out the carpet the night before we were bringing them home. And I'm not sure we ever got the carpet sufficiently clean. Our second apartment we lived in above us was a drug dealer, and we got a situation one night where there was we overheard this discussion about a shooting that was going to take place. And so that's where we live. Now, we didn't have any resources. We didn't have wealth and we didn't have privilege. But so what we did have is we had books and other things that we thought we could use to implement to try to help our child get a head start so that when he did meet young people who grew up with wealth and privilege, he played soccer. And I, and I tell this story about one of his teammates, parents dropping him off in a limousine with a nanny. That young man, I've, I've said people all the time, I would challenge anyone to tell, find a child who's done more with their lifespan than our son was able to do. And it wasn't because of wealth and privilege. It was because he had some direction on how to get there. So I am really don't know how we change systems that are set up by people who are not well intended. I think the better thing people can do is to control those things that they can control, which again, starts with the things you do at home even before long before your child gets to school. I just cannot undervalue the foundational aspects of making sure a child can read before age three or that a child can do math before age three so that when they do arrive at school, they're not having to learn from a system that's set up for them not to be successful. They're already prepared to read, to learn, and to do math at at the very highest levels. So I think a takeaway would be that at any age, at any point in life, you can be within a system, you can be within a community, but you don't have to become either. 
And that is about backwards design. That's about deciding what you want to be. You will hear me saying that I think that it's easy. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's easy. I'm just saying, I'm, part of me is saying, if the systems are set up in such a way, for example, in, in education in this country, it's primarily based upon home, home ownership and home values and folks who are, are poor and oftentimes people of color live in communities where the where home ownership is lower and home value prices are lower thus the school's resources are lower so if we're not going to change a system that puts that in place then we can't keep waiting somehow for the those who set up the system to provide you with the resources that you need to change um to change the way things have gone. So like, well, well, then what else can we do? If if waiting till your child is six or seven to get to school to read is is part of what the, the system is hoping you would do, what what would happen if we started earlier? Well, so that's that's all I'm saying. Let's can we try something different or something, some things that are additional? Because I don't know that the system is changing until we change people. Yeah, I agree with that. So for parents out there that maybe feel like they're treading water. What would you recommend in terms of resource, free or not free, for them to just kind of grab onto not only their desire, because hopefully they already have that, to prop their children up and give them the best that they possibly can, but a resource, because we, because like you said, we don't get taught necessarily. It's not, there's not an education, there's not a manual per se. So if you were a, an expecting parent, a new parent, and you're trying to figure out, for example, um, how to make sure your child could read very early. There was a series of books written by a gentleman by the name of Glenn Doman, who wrote books for parents of, of children with brain injuries. And I want to say, Heather, those books probably first started publishing those books 30 or 40 years ago. He now has an institute in Philadelphia, where I think his daughter maintains the institute in Philadelphia. I think it's the Institute for, well, it doesn't matter. It, it's, but he has a, a facility in, in Philadelphia where he, where he coaches now parents with wealth and privilege. I think it's three or $4,000 to go. But those books, probably as little as $15. And, and those books are where we started with how do you give, how do you teach a, an infant to read? How do you teach a, an infant to do math? Um, there was a book I read, How to Give uh, a, a Child Encyclopedic Knowledge. And so there are little things you could do with, with infants and, so, and babies that um, their books don't cost very much. Um, today, if you wanted to make sure a child could learn an, a new language or an additional language, there's stuff like du- Duolingo. If you had a child and you weren't quite sure how well they were doing, and I would encourage any parent to do this that has a child that's in grade school, I, at the end of the year, I would take the the Khan Academy's um, in a year assessment to see, to make sure that my child has actually mastered all of the elements. For example, let's say second grade math is so often parents look at grades and make the assumption that the child has mastered um, the material when in fact they may have only learned 25, 30% of second grade math. When they go to third grade math, then they start to see things that they didn't see in second grade because now they're expected to put elements together from the second grade they didn't learn as a part of third grade math. So that's something you could do. That is also something you can do for free. There are tests that families get um, oftentimes in many states. One of them is the NWE 
EA test, the Northwest Educational Assessment Test, which their tools is a college exploratory tool that will help families plug in the numbers that their children get from the test to see which college or universities the child is on track for right now. And if there is a college or university the family is specifically interested in, you can see if your scores are 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 match what's necessary. And if they don't, then you know what kinds of things your child needs to do in terms of more uh, experience with reading, more training with math to be able to get to those particular levels. So there are free things to do, but I would say it all starts with some kind of an assessment about where it is you want to go and then finding out exactly where you are at the present. Okay. I love all of that. Can you say the author's name one more time? Was it? Sure. It's Glenn Doman. I believe it's uh, G L E. In, I don't know if it's two ends, but a dome and D-O-M-A-N. Okay, awesome. And I think that what you and your wife did by getting that Harvard application, I think even just something as simple as that is so revealing because like you said, when you look at it, you have an idea of what's going to be needed. But when you actually get the application, that gives you some specific ideas and things that you wouldn't necessarily think of. So I love that. When when Heather, when the when the application says, uh, obviously you have to do well in school, and you don't have a child, you say, well, okay, well, well, how do I how do I make sure that in eighteen years or what I wanted to happen was in fourteen? I wanted my child to be ready for college at fourteen. My wife thought that was absurd. I think today she might she might agree with me that it would have been okay if he was ready at fourteen. But um, you say, okay, well, Harvard wants students that that are exceptional academically. Well, how do you how do you get a child to be exceptional academically? Well, you start with just very basic average things with a child when when a child is born. You read to the child, you play with the child. You don't use baby talk. You speak to the child as you would an adult. You might increase your own vocabulary so that when the child hears words from you, the child is also being able to master a certain level of vocabulary because of their relationship with their parents. So there, those are the kinds of things we would do. We introduced reading to our son by letters that I wrote to him. And when he started to read, because he was a fan of comic books, we would allow him to read comic books. We didn't know it at the time, but comic books are often written, of course, at a, at a very high reading level, uh, certainly graphic novels. And so you have a two, three-year-old who's learning to read, but is reading a, a much higher um, uh, reading level than he would be as if he was reading C, C Spot Run, um, Jack Jumped Over the Moon, et cetera. Yes. And actually, I love that idea too, because I think I saw somewhere, uh, maybe in your bio, how you said you, you like to edutain. So it's, it's, you have to, I mean, education is phenomenal, but if you're not capturing someone's attention, you could be sitting there telling them the most valuable information in the world, but it's not going to get in. So comic books are great. And if, if they are written at a higher reading level, which I was not aware of, even better. Yeah. I think we, 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 we fight sometimes with our children over the things that are most insignificant. So the, if the goal is to get the child to read, I don't really care what he's reading. I just wanted him to read. And because once he read it, then then I get to do the comprehension piece. I get to say, so well, tell me what you read about. Tell me what who the, who the antagonist was. Tell me who the protagonist was. And he can say, well, I don't know what an antagonist is. And then you get to say, well, here's what an antagonist is. So now he's reading things and he's looking at, because you've now made him aware that these stories have an antagonist. So the stories have a, a protagonist. And so now you're introducing concepts to a child who simply wanted to read what they wanted to read and you let them read it. 
And at the same time, you're benefiting in the long run because now you know, when my son got tested as a three-year-old, we found out that his vocabulary exceeded that of an eight-year-old. And we didn't do anything special. We just <laughs> introduced him to something he enjoyed. He enjoyed comic books. He enjoyed Superman and Marvel. So we're like, okay, fine. Let's start giving you comic books. Once a week, we go to the comic book store and you pick out a comic book and you learn to read and whatever words you couldn't understand, you'd get a dictionary or you'd sit down with one of your parents and we'd help you to sound out the words, et cetera, until you were able to, to master it. Love it. So um, to close this up here, I wanted to open the door to what you've got going on now. Is there something, a topic that you're particularly passionate about? Do you have a project that you're working on that you'd like to share? Sure. We just finished a, a, a new book and we're working on our second version of our our um, children's story, which is the amazing world of STEM. So we, we have a new STEM book. This will be released, I believe we said for September. And it, um, it is a book that focuses on um, the homeless crisis in this country, the way that some some eight-year-olds or third graders come up with to resolve some of America's housing problems. The other thing we just um, finished is a book called Journey Forward, which is a collection of journal entries, which is something I learned to do from my son, of something I asked him to do years ago, which was to write his life as he'd like it to be, as opposed to the way that it is. So each day I would ask him to journal about what he want, what his hopes and dreams were from an emotional dynamic point of view, as if those things were already made into reality. And instead of telling him what to do, I decided I should do it myself. So we have a friend who encouraged me to take 55 of those entries. And we now are publishing them into this book called Journey Forward. Love it. There is something, and I'm not a psychologist or a scientist or any of that, but there is something insanely powerful in putting it down on paper and imagining your life and walking towards that as opposed to just saying, oh, that's just a dream. It is a dream, but you can walk into it as a reality. You just have to take the steps. I yeah, I it. would I would say I'm here with you today in part because of that. I have a very I have a vision board. I have a very large vision board, several of the same vision boards throughout my house, on my phone, my laptop, et cetera, um, about the kind of life that I that I want to live that I'm reminded of. And each day, the very first thing I do each day, the first eight to 14 minutes is I spend imagining some aspect of my life. And then I write about that thing. And, and um, so many of those things have come to fruition. And one of the things I would do is to do a TED talk. And I've done that. Um, I wanted to have an opportunity to speak in various places throughout the country. And I've had an opportunity to do that. I wanted to write and be recognized for writing and not for financial planning. And in some respects, I've, those things have, have happened. So um, I'm going to Hawaii in a couple of weeks. And that was on one of the things on my vision board. I wanted to sit outside of a volcano and outside of a waterfall and kind of meditate. So pretty soon that'll happen. So yeah, I'm a big fan of, of, of vision in it. And then, then working like hell, if I can say that to, to make that a reality. Oh yes. We've been very PC, but we swear a lot on this show. <laughs> uh, all right. So final three questions. Um, first, what is the one thing you wish more people knew about education in general? And how can anybody, any single person, become more engaged with it? Okay. What is the one thing about education I wish people knew more about is that um, the way that education is looked at is 
is passive rather than active, and it should be active. And what I would prefer for us to do instead of talking about who's educated, because educated is past tense. It sounds as if so-and-so went to XY University and they were educated there. I think the word we should be thinking about is enlightenment, which which I believe means to go into the light. And I believe that's what we should be doing with with quote unquote education is to think about education in terms of enlightenment. How do we learn more than we knew yesterday? How do we prepare to know more than we know today? Um, and I'm sorry, the second part of the question was, what can we do to be more engaged as people? One of the things I'd like to see us do is this thing that I talk about, which is called a, a, a domestic exchange. I think this that we're a nation of people who who love to live in our own silos. Sometimes we're in silos because we feel like we can't escape those silos. Sometimes we're in silos because that's the way the system is set up. But I think if we're going to be a a nation that ever lives up to its promises and declarations, we're going to have to, as a people, decide to live outside comfortably of our own community. So what does that mean? If you and I were to travel to to Germany or any parts of Europe, or we went to Africa, we would go and we would talk about this great foreign exchange that we had, or there may be a student who comes here and that student would have a full breadth of experiences here. And we do the same thing there. But in America, you and I could live in the same city and be raised in different parts of town and never come in contact with each other, which I think is utterly ridiculous. I think one of the things we have to do is to start to get outside of our own communities. And the best way to do that in America is where we spend our money. Um, Americans value greatly our, uh, the dollar. And so if you decided to eat food one day, don't eat it in the community where you usually eat it. Go to another community that, that where people don't look like you or don't think like you and have dinner there. Maybe you see a doctor in a different community or a dentist in a different community, or maybe you have your, I don't have any hair, Heather, but if I did, maybe I could go to a barbershop in a different community. But the ideal is to spend time with people who are unlike you. I love it. And on that note, I want to just re, I want to bring back in. I mentioned your talk earlier. It's the DEI talk. I will link that in the show notes. Everybody needs to watch this. <laughs> I, I did two times in a row. I was like, yes. And you have some really great analogies. I like the, the wonk, wonk machine and wow. all the kids are coming back with yes. all the kids are coming back with is hypocrite. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Love it. So anyways, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. What are five words you would use to describe yourself? Five words. Just five. five words. Sorry. I'm sure that's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know if I have five words. Um, father, uh, author, husband, son, friend. All right. So a people person, where can we find you and connect and well, you learn can, more? You can find me anywhere, Heather. Um, everybody else, <laughs> I mean, this place to find me I have a, is our, our website. It's NathanielATurner.com, N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L-A-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And that's probably the easiest way. The links to everything are there, links to to our blog, Raising Superman, um, the link to our online course. I believe the link to our not-for-profit, which is the League of Extraordinary Parents. I, um, we started that about two years ago to to provide parents with some of the, the answers to some of the questions you've asked today, resources, how to make the, their children's best life possible. Amazing. Okay. So we will make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Everybody check it out. Thank you so much for joining me. This was amazing. And maybe we can have you back sometime because like you said, we didn't talk a whole lot about diversity. 
but I know you got a lot of thoughts on it. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks for, for allowing me to be a part of your show today. Thank you so much for listening in to another episode of Diversity on Fire. As always, our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply, and I hope today's episode with Nathaniel Turner helped you do just that. Don't forget to check the show notes so you can find important links and resources from today's episode. Hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Follow us on social media so you can see some of our wonderful posts. And please, five-star review on Apple Podcast so more people can join these important conversations. I think one of the things we have to do is to start to get outside of our own communities. 